Welcome to Inside IR, a podcast series by Herbert Smith Freehills that explores the latest developments in the Australian industrial relations landscape. Hello and welcome to Inside IR, the Australian industrial relations podcast, the series that arms HR, IR and legal professionals with the latest industrial relations thinking. My name is Rowan Doyle. I'm a partner in the industrial relations team at Herbert Smith Freehills. And joining us today on the Inside IR Couch is Executive Counsel Lucy Boyd and partner Tony Wood. Welcome, team. Hi, Rowan. Thanks, Rowan. Good to be here. First time. Very excited. Yes. And you're back in Melbourne, of course. About three or four years ago, you were in London uh, within HSF. Had a few years there, but um, started here in Melbourne many years ago now. So yeah, You're, good well, to be back. Good to have you couch. back home and uh, very much looking forward to your insights on Inside IR today. And Tony, you're a bit more experienced on Inside IR, your third appearance, I think. I'll do my best, Rowan, to meet your very high expectations. Fantastic. Do you have any statistics for us today? You normally come to us with some I, nice I will have some graphs data. and charts. I'll have okay. some data well, that uh, we can talk about later. I look forward to that. Uh, but we do have uh, another very important episode of Inside IR today. It is our second episode in our series on the closing loopholes bill. We're going to need a few more on top of this as well to get through the 270-odd uh, pages and the 28 distinct parts of that bill. But just to cap, uh, recap on where we're at with that bill and set the scene. So we, we know, as at the time of filming, the Senate has referred the bill to the Senate Education and Employment Legislation Committee for an inquiry and uh, very tight deadlines have been uh, imposed for written submissions as part of that inquiry. But the reporting deadline has been pushed out until the 1st of February 2024. So what that means for us is that we're not going to have an act uh, at least until after that date. So we'll be talking February, March, April into the new year. But importantly, despite that delay, one very important thing that we're telling our clients is Please don't make the mistake of thinking that that means you can ignore this, not worry about it until the new year if and when it passes. The reason you can't ignore it is because there are aspects of the bill that, if it does actually pass, regulate conduct that's occurring right now. So we spoke during our previous episode on same job, same pay about the anti-avoidance provisions. That applies, if it passes, to conduct from on and from 4 September 2023. So... Employers in particular, hosts, need to know those obligations now. But on top of that, and we'll be covering some of this today, some really serious changes that are going to impact how businesses resource their workforces. And those changes are going to require some serious thinking and planning well ahead of commencement. So if this legislation does commence in the new year, it's going to uh, come up very quickly and it's going to require some really uh, solid advanced planning well ahead of commencement for businesses to really survive and thrive in this new world of IR. So um, as we said in our previous episode, we have produced a comprehensive summary on the bill, uh, Google HSF and closing loopholes, and you'll have the link to that pop up. Um, so do have a look at that. That'll give you some, some really great insights to what legislation will do. But um, again, as we mentioned on our previous episode, there's really seven big ticket items that we need to be aware of in the bill. The first is same job, same pay orders. And the second are the new minimum conditions that will apply, apply to regulating non-employees in the gig economy and in the road transport distribution sector. Those first two topics we covered in our previous episode of Inside IR. We also covered the new Fair Work Commission jurisdiction to challenge unfair contracts. It's number three. 
Number four is the new federal criminal offence for wage theft and some changes to the penalties regime for non-compliance. We'll deal with that in a future episode of Inside IR, which leaves us with the remaining three of those seven, and they are the new casual employee definition, the new definition for working out whether an employee, a worker is an employee or contractor, and the new workplace delegate rights. And those are the three topics that we're going to cover on the episode today. Now, a common theme with those three changes, Tony, Lucy, I, I think is uncertainty. Uh, and it'd be good to reflect on that as we go through these topics today. We are moving in each of those three topics. We're moving from a scenario where I think employers, businesses, we're all pretty clear on the tests. We're, we're clear now, generally speaking, who is a casual, who's an employee versus a contractor, what uh, rights employees and delegates have in the workplace. And I think on each of these topics, we're moving to tests that are multifactorial and frankly, are going to be quite unclear. They're going to be unclear for even seasoned practitioners that are very experienced in this space. And um, personally, I, I worry about the, the standard sort of medium to even larger size business and their capacity to actually apply these new provisions and, and um, act with confidence that they're affording their workers with the requisite minimum conditions required by statute. So there's some important themes that I think we should touch on today. But Rowan, it's not a lack of clarity that is new in a sense, is it? I mean, it's going mm. back to what we had for many years, I mean, in relation to what is a casual employer, what's an employee. We've always had that confusion and uncertainty and the lack of any definition necessarily in the Act until, you know, the High Court cases, of course. I think, Lucy, you'll be dealing with that, so I don't want to steal your thunder. <laughs> but, I mean, it's it's going backwards and it's it's going to we, – we had for a short period much less confusion and someone has said, no, too clear, let's go back to where it was really unclear. We're, we're in heated agreement on that, Tony. <laughs> it, it is uh, – look, it is a step backwards. So um, let's explore those themes. But let's start, Tony, with, with you, workplace delegate rights. It seems that a deliberate design feature of this legislation is really to uh, arm the union movement with tools to enhance their capacity to return to sort of grassroots union organising and, and probably – uh, in an attempt to reverse the decades of decline in union membership density, Tony? Well, let me get this off my chest mm. straight away because, and, and I'm sure this will be a theme that recurs as we do a number of these presentations, but this is about well, the, the legislation, the little pithy little title is closing the loopholes. There's no loophole here that they're closing. This is the creation of new and extended rights without, as far as I'm aware, any real... Uh, advance uh, warning about these changes or any uh, consolidated need or requirement for them to, to, to be made. So probably really is a justification to enhance the role of unions generally. And, and in a sense, uh, I can imagine that's part of the general narrative about making bargaining, uh, enterprise bargaining uh, more amenable, easily, more easily achievable. And this is just one of those side issues that's been added on to expand it. And, you know, you talk about data earlier. Uh, we, we know that union membership has, has, you know, it fell off the cliff years and years ago and it's, it's falling into the crevice. Um, the, the union membership generally in the private sector is, I think on the latest data, about 8%. 
8% of the private sector workforce. When you take into account the public sector overall, it's about 11 or 12%, right? So we are entrenching within the, uh, the, the Act uh, certain rights of workplace delegates, I'll talk about that in a minute, which uh, enhance the role or in fact create a role for unions in every single workplace. Uh, so I can go on about that a little bit more. Fun, the fundamental changes are these. Number one, every modern award must include a workplace delegates term. And that is it must provide for uh, the rights of workplace delegates within you know, every, every employer. And similarly, any workplace determination or more relevantly, any enterprise agreement needs to have a workplace delegates term and if the term is not as favourable as that that exists in the award, then the award will automatically replace it. And it's up to the commission to determine the, the, the rights in each workplace uh, delegates clause in each award. And the explanatory memorandum deals with saying, well, in some cases, in some industries or some sectors, the delegates term may be different to what it is in other, in other clauses. So you might have... Uh, you know, offshore uh, drilling or mining or, uh, or uh, FIFO workforce, which requires, at least in the Commission's view, a more uh, rigorous cause uh, dealing with workplace delegates' rights. But there'll be some time before all that happens, won't there, Tony? Because, of course, I think the deadline for the modern award terms is 1 July 2024. 1 July 24. And then, consequentially, the obligation to include them in EAs only applies to votes that commence post 1 July 2024. But there are some rights that commence more immediately, aren't there, on royal assent? Yeah, well, the Act, the Act, whenever that is, and we don't know what the timing is going to be on all of this and depends on the Senate outcome as well, because even the 1 July uh, you know, prospective commencement of the award uh, rights may well push, yeah, it might out. push out. So, so who knows? But the, the most importantly, there are changes to the general protections laws. So what that means is it, it fills what, the EM at least says is a, is a gap in the in in the sense of the rights of a workplace delegate uh, to be protected from adverse action in relation to their performance of their role as a workplace delegate, which by the way isn't expanded upon. But can I just go back and say what is a workplace delegate? Because a workplace delegate under the legislation is someone who is uh, appointed. Uh, or elected under the rules of the registered organisation, which is a union. So contemplate this. Any person who uh, is elected or appointed as a, as a union delegate automatically has rights to represent any other member within their employer, but also anyone who is a prospective member, so someone who is eligible to be a member of that union. And that's an, quite a considerable expansion of what we currently have. And because that means in bargaining, for instance, I'm jumping around a bit, Ryan, but it, it means in bargaining that if you have, uh, you know, let's say a medium-sized business, you've got 100 employees, uh, you have traditionally enterprise bargained with your workforce, you don't have the ro a role with the union, the union probably doesn't, make, let's say has no members, or has one or two members and has a kind of sporadic interest only in bargaining, 
once you've got one member, one workplace delegate, they can uh, uh, act on behalf of mem any other members if there are any, but they also can uh, represent the industrial interests, whatever those are. Uh, that term isn't defined quite easily in the Act, actually. You represent the industrial interests of non-members. And that can mean, uh, well, I can go on in a minute and say what that means in terms well, of some of let, the rights. Let's dig into yeah. what that means, because I think that's that's the real trick here, because uh, there is some, some grey around the edges on this. So let's assume there's a workplace delegate in the workplace there's at least one member, maybe hundreds of potential members. Yes. What are the new rights that are afforded to that workplace delegate? Well, first of all, the employer has to recognise their role and they can't treat them adversely as a consequence of them exercising those rights, save that the explanatory memorandum refers to um, an exclusion about an employer being able to you know, conduct reasonable management action in relation to the performance of the role. But... In, interestingly, the workplace delegate has certain rights to communicate with their members or persons eligible to be members. It doesn't, on the other hand, create a right for, for non-members to be represented, but, it's a, but nevertheless, the workplace delegate can seek to represent their industrial interests. And it means on work time that the workplace delegate could say, there's an issue over in plant B, I'm the workplace delegate, I need to go over and represent them. And the employer will then say, well, hang on, um, I need you to do your job here, you know, fixing the widgets in plant A, you can't go. And therefore you'll get a question about what is reasonable because right throughout the legislation, there are references to uh, the eligibility for the workplace delegate mm. to uh, undertake tasks, uh, or I should say, an onus on the employer to provide reasonable access, reasonable facilities and reasonable opportunity for the workplace delegate to perform their role. And what's reasonable is uh, a, a test which is going to depend on the size, the nature and the resources that are available within that particular enterprise. Well, it's fertile, fertile ground for disputes and yes. it's going to be fascinating because in developing those modern award terms that you've mentioned, the Fair Work Commission is going to have to look at these workplace rights and use them essentially as the base to develop those terms. So it's going to be quite interesting to see what view the Fair Work Commission takes about the boundaries of these rights. But just to refer to some of the specific words used in the legislation of those rights you mentioned, Tony. Yeah. Employer must not unreasonably fail or refuse to deal with the workplace delegate. So if they turn up in a performance or disciplinary discussion as the representative, uh, as a representative in a disputes process, insert long list of other scenarios, yep. probably an obligation to deal with them. Well, and, and the onus is on the employer to disprove the, the breach. Correct. So if, if, the if, if the employee or workplace delegate says, well, I wasn't provided with the reasonable facilities or I wasn't given the reasonable opportunity to perform my role, mm. then the onus is on the employer to, to disprove the breach of the, you know, of the adverse action. The, the other one is that the employer can't unreasonably hinder, obstruct or prevent exercise of these rights by the delegate. Yeah. The boundaries of this are just quite unclear. Or they can't communicate or misrepresent mm. their rights as mm. well. So uh, if, if an employer is uh, naively aware or maybe even wishes to say, no, you're not allowed to go, I'm not going to allow you to go, you can't represent their interests, then that's a potential misrepresentation. Mm. 
which are accompanied by quite significant civil penalties as, as already exists under the, um, under the workplace rights provisions of the Act. So it's going to be a new area for employers to have to understand to deal with, particularly those where you don't have entrenched union memberships or where you might have complex issues of demarcations within an organisation and creating workplace delegates uh, in those circumstances where you might have the AMW against the ETU against a PESMA. Um, so again, there's fertile ground for disputes in that space as well. Yeah. That's right. And do you think, Tony, it's also going to set a minimum threshold for bargaining? So you'll have the award provisions and do you think the unions will approach that as the minimum in terms of bargaining and, and end up asking for more? I think that's right. I mean, you can look at it in the same way as a dispute resolution clause. There's kind of a default clause mm. um, that, that many employers will adopt. But of course, uh, in bargaining, you get a lot more developments on particular enterprise. So there's no question it's going to yeah. be the, 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 the minimum from which there'll be you know, fertile ground to expand. Yeah. I think that's the intent. It will be the, the <clears throat> general protections provisions we've just spoken about as the base. Modern awards will go a little bit further and then enterprise agreements will probably uh, go a little bit further again just by reference to that pressure you mentioned, Luce. That's right. So, but, but, you know, th the other thing, these also apply to regulated workers as well. And, mm. you know, you referred to earlier, you know, the road transport workers or the gig economy mm. or digital platform workers. And that's going to be really complicated. Yeah. It's not a big area necessarily of our client base. Um, but, uh, you know, if you're in the gig economy and you're not used to dealing with employees, let alone unions, mm. And, uh, you know, that's going to be a real additional burden, probably not at all, surprisingly. Um, it's going to make it harder for those businesses to survive and therefore to encourage, you know, more regularised employment arrangements rather than, than gig economy pseudo-employment arrangements. And another good reason ahead of Royal Assent to be very clear about how you're going to uh, comply with these new obligations from the start, it's going to require a little bit of advanced thinking because these are some quite extensive protections. That's right. And do you think, Tony, I'm just recalling back in the day some employers ended up with um, delegates who were, you know, fully paid by the employer, but their whole job was to be a delegate. They'd have their own room. Yes. They wouldn't actually be on the tools. Do you think that there's a risk of, of that returning if employers don't monitor this closely? Well, I'm always one to pile onto the commission when I can, but I think, let's face it, they, there, there are a lot of sensible men and women in the commission and they're going to want to be really careful to prevent this turning into some, you know, an elaborate monster. Yeah. But there will be attempts by you know, some unions or workplace delegates to expand and expand and expand. I actually see it more akin to the creation of of rights more uh, like European works councils. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I, I agree there's a potential for that, but the Commission will have, I think, some significant role in, in winding that back, or at least I'm hopeful that that would occur. That's right, if the employers challenge it, I yeah, guess, yeah. 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 Now, Lucy, speaking of uncertainty, the yes. bill also proposes new employer and casual employment definitions, uh, which really as you've mentioned previously, uh, appear to be deliberately designed to unwind High Court authority and uh, I think probably make it a little bit less certain as to what the nature of these relationships, relationships are. Do you want to comment on the changes that the Bill have, has made there? Yes, Ron, and you've hit the nail on the head. These changes are about a turning back time effectively. Um, in the past few years, as, as you know, we've had 
um, a few seminal cases make their way all the way to the High Court with um, Rosato on casual employment and personnel and um, personnel contracting and JAMSEC on the employment status definition. And what those cases did is that they confirmed the primacy of the contract in um, how a, a working relationship is characterised. Essentially, what's set out in the terms of the contract was the most important and the way that the parties then conduct the relationship had less relevance. So clearly for employers that provided a lot of certainty and mitigated a lot of compliance risk as compared to things of the past when you looked at the conduct of the relationship post that contract. Um, perhaps unfortunately for employers, these um, the bill uh, proposes to undo that work. So in relation to casual um, employment, it does three key things. First, it creates a new definition of casual employment, which is where there's an absence of a, 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 a firm advance commitment uh, for continuing an indefinite work. And that involves looking at the totality of the employment relationship and not just the contract. Uh, second, it introduces a new employee choice conversion uh, regime, which will sit alongside the existing casual conversion provisions in the Act. Uh, uh, lastly, it introduces an obligation on employers to issue uh, a casual employment information statement, not just at the start of the relationship, but 12 months um, uh, from the anniversary of the start date. Um, and, you know, that's really designed, as a lot of measures in the bill are, to educate employees and ensure that they're aware of these new pathways to secure permanent employment. Uh, turning to the employment status definition, it, it's a similar a similar um, path it has taken. Uh, the bill intends to introduce a new ordinary meaning, they call it, of employer and employee. Um, and again, it's moving away from the terms of the contract and looking at you know, the practical reality of the relationship more broadly. And but before we get to that change, the the definitional change is just to the ordinary meaning definition. Are you able to comment on, on what that means, Liz? That's right, Rowan. So it's just the ordinary meaning definition. So employees who are otherwise are not national system employees, say, for example, state uh, people who work in the state government section won't be impacted by these changes and will still continue to be covered by the, the common law tests from um, JAMSEC and personnel contracting. Yeah, so importantly, it doesn't impact the national system employee-employer definition in the Act and different divisions and sections of the Act utilise different definitions. It's an important complexity in all of this that you'll need to consider in application. But leaving that to one side for a moment, the change to the ordinary meaning definition, what will that mean practically? What do employers need to do, do we think, if this, this change takes effect? Well, it's a return to, you know, what's old becomes new again, as Tony said. So it, it's the multifactorial test that we're, we're all familiar with from a, from a few years ago. So we'll be looking at um, when a court is assessing a relationship, they'll look at a number of factors such as how an employee is paid, how they pay tax, the, the element of control and whether they can delegate their work. Um, so it, it's not a hard and fast rule as to whether someone's an employee or a contractor. 
uh, which is intended to create flexibility, um, ensure that um, relationships, the, the way they're run is, is, is reflected um, appropriately and is not just based on the contract. But unfortunately, that flexibility creates uncertainty for employers um, and uh, a degree of, well, a, a significant degree of compliance risk. Mm. Um, so if businesses will need to be looking at their contractor workforce, um, you know, conducting audits to ensure that if an employee, uh, sorry, if, if there's a contractor, that they're, they're truly a contractor with reference to those factors uh, that I mentioned. Um, and the, the risk and consequence for employers is that if uh, someone is, uh, you're, you treat them as a, a contractor, but they're in fact an employee at law, um, the risk is that they'll have claims for unpaid entitlements, giving rise to potential underpayments, and also they'll be able to access employment rights, which uh, you may not have proceeded on the basis that they were. So that there is risk associated with this. It's a familiar risk of mm. pre-JAMSEC and personnel contracting, but it requires um, businesses to, to examine the way they're running those relationships. Yeah. The the audit is a really great suggestion. That's just some, a, a tool, I guess, to, to monitor and make sure that you're treating your workers consistent with how you intend to characterise the relationship. But I think also I'd add to that the, the need to make sure that onboarding processes are set up in such a way that workers are being engaged through the correct engagement model in the first place. That's Because right. it may be yeah. that uh, certain workers that you've traditionally engaged as, as contractors, that might not actually be appropriate. What you might what you might actually need from the relationship is something that's more consistent with an employment relationship. And if that's the case, then, you know, sound onboarding processes uh, should include controls that ensure that those things are assessed and that the proper engagement model is selected. But, but before you um, move to casuals, I think there's just one other point I was going to add in, Luce, and that is also a slight change to the sham contracting offence, so misrepresenting an employment relationship as a contracting relationship slight change to the defence available to employers. It's moving away from the defence of it uh, not being uh, known or not being reckless as to the fact. Instead, it's moving to a reasonable belief test, which to me seems like a, uh, effectively a raising of the bar to, to meet that defence. It can be harder for employers to, Definitely. to roll um, it out. And similarly, with, with um, there's a new prohibition on misrepresenting the casual employment relationships with the same defence of reasonable belief that it was a, a casual employment relationship. But I think importantly for a lot of our clients, if um, for sophisticated big business with internal HR and ER, that's going to be a really high bar mm. to prove. Yep, agree. Um, on to casuals. So let's let's dig into that in a little bit more detail. What should employers be looking to do now? Let's assume this actually commences operation. What do employers need to do differently as a result of these changes? Well, it's similar to the the, the processes you take in relation to the employee definition. So I think businesses need to be looking at their casual labour and um, assessing the contracts because a contract is still relevant, but also assessing how that relationship is operating in practice. So whether, um, you know, the, the pattern of work, um, it, whether there's a regular engagement, whether there's a, a, an expectation of continuing work, whether the employer can truly reject and accept work as they please. So all those factors will be relevant. So a, a, an audit 
um, of those relationships is important, not just prior to the changes coming in, but setting up systems so relationships can be assessed at, at each point. Um, another um, measure which is relevant to the employee definition as well is I think education and training for hiring managers. They're not always experts in IR and HR, so in, ensuring that they're aware of uh, the potential consequences of getting a, a, a characterisation wrong. So the point being, we, we can't take as much comfort in the terms of our contracts anymore in defining the nature of that relationship. So does that mean, Luce, can, can employees sort of morph between casual and permanent as time goes on? Is there risk of that changing up? How does the bill deal with that? Well, that was previously the case, but there is a positive develop in the in the positive development in the bill regarding that. So um, the bill. Um, proposes that an employee remains a casual employee until a specified event. And the specified events, there's four of them, they're really clear. Uh, so it's where um, an employee converts to permanent employment under the Fair Work Act's um, existing casual conversion provisions. It's where an employee accept an, accepts an offer other than um, as a casual employee with the employer outside these regimes. Um, if the Fair Work Commission um, makes an order that an employee should be a permanent employee as part of the new arbitration provisions. And um, lastly, if the status is changed in accordance with an industrial instrument. So clearly defined situations and in each of those in situations, an employer will have advance notice that that, that um, determination can be made. And how does all this interact with the existing conversion provisions? There are some new provisions in the bill that provide um, additional mechanisms for employees to make known to their employers that they would like to convert or become permanent. Are you able to take us through that, Luce? Yeah, sure, Rowan. So the, the existing Fair Work Act provisions, so firstly the provisions will interact together. They're, they're supplementary rather than repealing one another. Um, the existing Fair Work Act provisions um, provide that an employer must make an offer of permanent employment to a casual employment if certain conditions are met, so that it's been 12 months and they've been working in a regular work pattern. Um, and then there's residual rights for an employee to request that conversion after that 12-month period. The difference with this new employee choice framework is that it puts the power in the hands of the employee and that's you know, part of the whole intention behind the legislation is to create pathways for security of work for employees. Um, so these, the employee choice framework allows an employee to um, give an employer a notification if they've been initially engaged as a casual employee, but they feel they're um, no longer meeting that definition. So they, you know, it's morphed into that there is a firm advance commitment for ongoing work. Um, so it, it essentially, like other statutory requests in the Act, allows an employee to, to put in this request. The employer is then obliged to consider it, to consult with the employee and then either accept or reject. Um, but similar to the other provisions, it's not just a default reject and you can get away with it. Um, there needs to be, there's defined circumstances for rejecting. So one being that you don't agree that they've become a casual employee. Um, and employer needs to give detailed reasons if they reject that um, notification request. 
Um, there's also a, a stick as well in that the Commission's arbitration powers have been expanded to deal with these um, disputes. Yeah. This really is closing the loopholes, mm, well. <laughs> this, this change, because because uh, it, it's complementary to the changes previously uh, to the uh, fixed-term uh, contracts. So uh, whereas now there are limitations on being able to have uh, fixed-term or extended uh, fixed-term uh, contracts, and now you either need to go on to permanent contracts or permanent employment, some employers were filling the filling that void with casual employment and this makes it just harder to to, to fill that void in a yeah sense. well it's it's a response to I think concern by the governor government as to the the take-up of those conversion rights and I think the view was that they weren't being exercised as as much as the government would would like now employer side uh, was saying well it's because Casuals actually People want to be casuals. Choice. Yeah, right. there is a choice. Now, uh, we'll soon find out because, I mean, I think that these new changes are designed to really flesh out um, to what extent do employees who are casuals actually want that arrangement or do they actually want permanency? Yeah. And I think we should add loose the, I think those new employee choice framework provisions that you mentioned, they don't kick in as at 12 months. Uh, consistent That's with the right. current conversion provisions, they kick in earlier for um, most employers. I think at the six month six mark, months, yeah. about twelve months for for small businesses. That's right. That is a key difference as well. Yeah. So I think, look, in all, there's there's a lot more regulation there, isn't there? And I, I think it is fair. I'm going to use the word uncertain because uh, I think if if there's primacy given to contract and the the way the parties have said that they intend the relationship to operate that is necessarily more certain. This requires a whole bunch of other factors to be assessed in making these calls and a whole bunch of additional processes to follow in order to ensure compliance. So unfortunately, uh, more work, more time to be invested in this by business uh, and in many respects, probably more lawyers as well, given the disputes that will float through the commission and the courts. Just, I, I agree. I, I, just a quick question. What what happens to the 25% loading that you have when, when you're a casual do, and, and you well, convert? Well, that, that is the second part of the definition. Um, so there's the firm advance commitment for ongoing work and that the employee receives a loading. So, um, you know, previously that, that was a the product of an industrial instrument. But now if someone's truly going to be a casual employee, it's required in the contract of employment if they're not otherwise award or EA covered. Yeah. One final question for me without notice, and, and I'll, I'll ask it to- <laughs> You're not suggesting this is scripted, are you? <laughs> <laughs> no one would have thought that, Tony. <laughs> but, and I'll ask each of you, just in case you have different views Tony on this. Tony can go first. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll start with Tony. Tony, thinking about the changes that Lucy just talked through, changes in employment definition and casuals, do you think that is gonna incentivize businesses to move a large proportion of these people to direct permanent employment? Well, actually I do. Mm. Um, and that's achieving the objective. Uh, look, I think they'll do so reluctantly because employers want as much choice as they possibly can have in those circumstances. But we've seen with the, uh, with, with the you know, changes on fixed term uh, contracts, it's, it's pushing employers in a particular direction. And this is also pushing them in towards another direction. Now, there is clearly a business need for casual labour. Um, and 
and I think what the government is saying is in these changes is when you genuinely need casual labour to fill voids in production or certain gaps, that's when you use casual labour. But if you're using casual labour for other purposes, really to have the inherently the inflexibility that you want over long term, then you're going to have to be curtailing that. I think employers are going to respond that way. Lucy, your thoughts? I agree with that. I think particularly in relation to the contractor employee definition. For casual employees, the the new specified event regime provides some comfort, particularly in relation to, you know, past compliance and, and back payment liability. But I think it's not total comfort because there's the misrepresentation um, provisions. So if you've mischaracterised a relationship from the start, there will be liability and it's a civil remedy provision. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, I think it, it is as what it was intended to do, driving employers to um, grow their direct employment, permanent employment workforce. Well, that certainly seems to be the intent. It's going to be fascinating to see how all this plays out. Uh, there's a lot more on this, including in relation to the casual employee definition in our comprehensive summary on the bill. So again, Google HSF and closing loopholes to get access to that. And so uh, there we have it. Tony, Lucy, thank you for your contributions today. Some more really significant reforms that are going to change the industrial relations landscape in Australia if they do commence. Look out for our next episode on closing loopholes, which will cover the remaining big ticket items, including the new federal criminal offence of wage theft. So as always, we'd love to hear feedback from you on Inside IR. Feel free to comment, send us an email uh, or direct message. Email is insideir at hsf.com. Otherwise, thank you for joining us and we look forward to seeing you on our next episode of Inside IR.